Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way. If you have your Bibles, open them to the book of Revelations. If you need help finding the book of the Revelation, all you got to do is go to the back where the maps and the indexes and all those things are. Start going towards the middle of the Bible till you get back to the Bible. That last book will be Revelation. Third chapter of the book of Revelation. In the 14th verse, we will begin in just a moment. But as we gather, we're going to take just a little break from our study in the book of Jonah. We, uh, we're in the middle of a four-part series through chapter 1 of the book of Jonah, but because of the fact that next week is revival and the following week uh, is Bible school and the following week is Father's Day and we will not be having services on Father's Day, I didn't want to do the third installment of the series and then have it be a month before we could do the fourth. So we're going to, to do this message here, and then we'll get back into the book of Jonah uh, following Father's Day. And tonight we're going to look in the book of Revelations, chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, the letter to the church of Laodicea. And this is more popularly known as the letter to the lukewarm church. So would you please stand as we honor the reading of our holy God this evening, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Let us pray. Father God, we come to you. We thank you this evening for your word. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your truth, Lord. God, we thank you for a call to repent, and we thank you for an opportunity to be revived, Lord God. God, you bind any spirit from this place that's not your Holy Spirit, Lord God, and we will give you the praise and the honor and the glory for all the things that you do and all of God's people said, and you may be seated. We find ourselves looking at the last of seven letters written to the, the actual seven actual churches. So the, the letters are written to actual churches in actual cities that were in Asia Minor in this time. But even though they are written to actual churches in actual cities of an actual time, uh, they transcend time as well. And what I mean by that is that even though they were originally penned and carried to a, a specific person, a specific place, a specific church, they transcend time and still are relevant to us today. Uh, they speak to churches throughout history. They speak of the state of the church ever since the apostolic church in the book of Acts. And so they sort of illustrate to us different places that we find our churches in at different times throughout history. Keep in mind, these seven churches, only two, Smyrna and Philadelphia, had no condemnation. And so there was only two of the seven that didn't receive a bad word from God or something that they needed to correct. 
And the other five got progressively worse as they went along. Ephesus was said to have lost its first love. Pergamos, who had not left the faith but had become tolerant to sin. Thyatira had some good things going on, but they had compromised their holiness with evil ways. Sardis was essentially a dead church, but there were a few genuine believers left. But this final letter to the Laodicean church, the church that made Jesus sick to his stomach. This is the only church that Jesus has nothing good to say about. In all of the other six letters, even the ones where he found negative things going on, he found something good to commend them on. So there was a commendation as well as a condemnation. So there was a positive as well as a negative. But with the church to the Laodiceans with this letter, he has not one positive thing that he puts in his letter to this church. He doesn't speak of one redeeming quality, you may say. And so the first thing I want us to look at in this letter is the authority of his rebuke. The authority of his rebuke. Verse 14, he says, To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Here we have the establishing of the authority of the author of the rebuke. And so what what I mean by that is even though the pen was being held by John on that island... The letter is being written by Jesus. In other words, even though John is holding the instrument in his hand, God is guiding his hand to pin these words down. He first says, to to talk about who the authority is, he says, I am the amen. It's a a word that is used to affirm truth or confidence. Isaiah 65, 16 says, the God of the amen. That literally translates the God of the truth. God was called to God of truth. In other words, what I'm saying, God says, as I write this letter, because I say that I am the amen, you can take it to the bank. It is the truth. It is the affirmation. Uh, Amen is also used as an emphasis statement. Uh, So it's sometimes used at the beginning. You will see it, uh, the same word for amen is often found throughout Scripture. You may see it written verily, verily, or truly, truly, or amen, amen. All that would be the same word when you read that in Scripture. And it, it is set to affirm the truthfulness of what is coming. So he may say, verily, verily, I say to you. And when that is used, when that language is used, what you can guarantee, what you can take to the bank, is when you say, amen, amen, or verily, verily, that something important is following along. It's kind of to call your attention so that if you're scanning through or listening, it would be like if I was in the middle of preaching a long sermon... And I said, now wait, 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 wait. I want you to hear this. What, what it would mean is, is I realize that we've been together for 20 minutes now and you're probably tired of hearing my voice. And I've got two more points to cover and you're wondering how long it's going to take me, but I don't, I don't want you to miss this. If you, don't, if you don't get anything else, I want you to get this. And that's kind of what it says when you would say, amen, amen, or verily, verily. Sometimes amen is used at the end of a statement. It's used to seal the certainty of what is said. This is why that we say amen at the end of our prayers. It seals the, the certainty and the faithfulness to God as to what we've just petitioned Him with. It's to, to seal that statement off. In other words, what I'm trying to say 
is that he calls himself the Amen. And what he is saying there is, I am the true. I am the confirmation. I am the affirmation. I am sealing this statement. This is a true and worthy statement, Laodiceans, coming from the Amen, coming from the truth. And then he even goes further. He says, I'm the true and faithful witness. He kind of reiterates what he says by calling himself the Amen. But then he uses another description, and I want us to stay here for just a minute. He says, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, let's be clear. He isn't saying the first thing created by God. That would be an entirely different statement. He says the beginning of the creation of God. And so why does he use this description here? As I, as I look at that, I see amen. It makes sense. I'm saying that I'm the faithful. I'm the true. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. I am the amen. But the beginning of the creation. And when you study a little bit about what's going on in Laodicea in this time, you find that there was a popular heresy that had risen. It had risen up, actually, in Colossae. And so you would recognize Colossae. You rec- Paul wrote a letter to the church of the Colossians. That was to the people of the, t- the place called Colossae. And so Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae, and I know you might not pronounce those words, I might not have pronounced them right, but what I want you to know is that those three cities were kind of sister cities. All right, they were, they were about 10 miles between Colossae and Laodicea and about 5 miles between Laodicea and Hierapolis. So it would be, you know, try to, try to use your imagination a little bit. Uh, Lebanon, we could say that Lebanon was Laodicea, Mount Juliet, uh, was Colossae, and Watertown was Hierapolis. So you would have them all kind of connected there in that span. And so what I mean by that is when Paul writes to the Colossians and he says, uh, the things that he says, he says there's a heresy about Jesus Christ that's become pop- popular, saying that Jesus was just a created being. The people of Colossae had begun to believe that Jesus was not fully God, that he wasn't God, that he really wasn't anything spectacular. He was just Another part of creation. He was the the thing created by God, that he wasn't God. And and so it's most likely that as John is penning this letter under the Spirit of God, he says, I am the beginning of the creation of God, instead of saying that I'm the first part of creation of God. It's to establish this heresy as false. He wants to make sure, because if it had reached the Colossians, it had definitely reached the Laodiceans as well. You know, Paul writes in the letter to the Colossians that that Jesus is the supreme of creation, but he also writes that by him and through him all things were created, and not through him nothing was created. So he writes, Jesus is not simply part of creation, he is the creator. And so as we see this, that's what we also see in this letter as he gives the authority of the rebuke. He's saying, I Write this letter. I am the amen, the good and faithful witness, the one who can say this, the one who created all things, the one with the authority of which to say these words that I am saying to you. It would not be very much different. I've seen in the workplace several times where maybe someone delivers a message to you in the workplace. And they come and they say to you, hey, I need you to go and, and, and run this machine for a while. But they don't have the authority to tell you this, and so you just look at them like they're crazy, and you keep doing what it is that you were doing. But when the boss comes in and says, hey, 
I need you to go and jump on that machine. It's a different statement, isn't it? Because of who it comes from. And so what Jesus is saying to the Laodiceans here before he ever gives the rebuke, he's essentially establishing the fact that what is about to be told to you, you need to listen to because it's coming from the preeminent of all creation. The one who made all things. The one who is the faithful and true witness. The one who is the beginning and the end. The one who is the top and the bottom. The one who is everywhere, always, and everything. You need to listen to what is coming. And so there is the authority of the rebuke. Second, I want us to look at the severity of the rebuke. Look at verses 15 through 17 with me. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. He says, I know your works. This, this word for works can be interchanged with the word for deeds that you will often see in some translations of Scripture. It's the same word used in Romans 2, 6, and 8 when Paul says that by our deeds is how we will be seen by God. Now, I know that's a little confusing. Some of you are thinking, now, wait a minute, preacher. This morning you kept talking about how salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not of our works and not of our deeds. And what I want to do is I want to be clear. It's not by our works. There's nothing that our works or deeds could ever do to earn us the grace of God. But, 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 don't get that confused with because of the grace of God, we don't have any works and fruits of our own spirit. What scripture says is when we'll be judged by our deeds, what it means is this. If you are saved by grace through faith, you will have fruits of the Spirit in your life. You will not be the same as you were before you were saved. You will not act the same, look the same, do the same, be the same as you were before Jesus. Because if you are, then you never met Jesus. And that's a simple statement. A lot of times we get caught up in that. We say, oh, by grace through faith. That's absolutely right. None of us have anything inherently worthy of saving. We're only saved by the grace of God. But once we are saved, we have an entirely new set of desires, an entirely new set of deeds that we accomplish. doesn't mean we don't do some of the same old deeds. It means that we don't like it when we do. And we strive to have a new story. We try to have a new path. And so he's saying to them, in this severity of this rebuke, he says, I see the things that you're doing. I see your works. I see your deeds. I see who you really are is essentially what he's saying. I see really what's on the inside. And when I see you, I see that you're not cold nor hot. I could wish that you were one or the other, but you're just, you're kind of lukewarm. And that word for lukewarm literally translates tepid and is used to describe water. How many of you would ever want to be described as tepid water? I don't even know for sure what tepid means, but I don't think it's good. Somebody laugh with me. I really know what tepid means. All right, catch up. Sunday night for Memorial Day. I get it. Come on, let's, let's, let's hammer down. It literally means tepid or useless or poisoned or, or, or just, just nasty water. It literally means nasty water. So I did a little research. Why would God use the description of nasty water as he speaks of this church? And if you find out about where Laodicean church was, it's in modern day Turkey now. And if you knew a little bit about where it was, you do a little study of the geography and all of that stuff, you would find that they were in a valley 
and they didn't have a water supply. There were no natural springs, there were no natural rivers that had enough water to supply them with fresh water. Obviously, you can't have a city without water. Obviously, they didn't have the water department then. So how did they get water to the church and to the city of Laodicea? They did it through a series of aqueducts, so underwater stone pipes. And so the only way they had water in the city is if it flowed through the stone pipes from several miles away from one of the other cities into their city. Now, because their pipes were old stone pipes and the journey was long and they didn't have pumps and things to make the water get there quickly, the water that may have been cold when it started in the river, when it got to Laodicea, it wasn't cold anymore. And the water that may have come from a hot spring in Hierapolis when it got to Laodicea, well, it wasn't hot anymore. It had traveled a long way, and as it went... The impurities had made their way into the water. And by the time it got there, it really, just really almost wasn't worth having. And as we see this and we understand what the people of Laodicea would have gotten when they read this, they would have understood what lukewarm means because they would have certainly related to their water supply really quickly. Now, Hierapolis to the north, it was known for their famous hot spring. And so... It would be a place where people would go for healing and therapy. So literally you would go to Hierapolis. It'd be like going to the, uh, the uh, where, what's the place called? You get massages. Spa. Thank you. Brent spends a lot of time at the spa. He knows what it is. I write a lot of checks to the spa. Liette knows where it's at. And so Hierapolis would be like the spa where you would go and get your, your sit in the sauna and, and have the warm water flow over your body. It would be healing and therapeutic. However, on the other side of things, in Colossae, they were known for the water that would flow out of the mountain and be ice cold and be pure and good for quenching the thirst. But there in the middle in Laodicea, they didn't have hot nor cold. And so they don't have any healing qualities. They don't have any thirst-quenching qualities. They just have nasty old water. Kind of imagine water out in the middle of a field in a pond that's not fed by anything. It just gets brown and nasty and goes up and down, and you don't really want to go swimming in it, and you don't really want to go drink it. And Jesus is saying to them, I see who you are, church. I see what you're made of. I see what's really on the inside. And you, uh, you're not really therapeutic or healing. You're not hot. You're not on fire. You're not doing anything to bring about the glory of God to the people around you. You're not affecting the people around you with anything positive. You're not showing the glory of God everywhere you go. You're not radiating the heat that comes off of a true believer that's on fire for God, who's been revived, who's ready to roll, who's ready to tell everybody what we see this morning, that once you've confessed your sins to God, once you've been revived by God, that His praises will ever be on your lips. Every time you open your mouth, Jesus will come out. You'll be one of those guys that nobody wants to hear because they say, oh, here comes another Bible verse. Here comes another Christian statement. Here comes another thing about that Jesus. There's that Jesus freak coming down the street again. That's okay. Jesus said, I'd rather you be hot being a Jesus freak. But then he goes further. He says, not only do I know your works, but if you're not going to be hot, I'd just soon you be ice cold. What's he mean when he says that? I'd just soon you be an atheist. 
I'd just soon you'd be a non-believer. I'd just assume you would just say, I don't know Jesus. I may or may not believe in God. And I don't want to. God said, I would rather that you be on fire or ice cold than you be right in the middle. Because what's he mean by right in the middle when he talks to the lukewarm church? Remember, he had nothing good to say to them. There was nothing to commend. If there was nothing to commend, then that means Christ wasn't there. Christ wasn't there. And so what he's essentially saying is, what you are, Laodicea, is you have become a people who are meeting in a church building, who are calling yourselves a church, who are pretending to have church, but you don't even know Jesus. You're not saved. You're not redeemed. You don't have a redeeming quality with which for me to even put in your letter. And the worst part is, is that you're pretending and you may even be convinced that you're okay. And what does God say about the church that acts like that? You make me sick at my stomach. You make me sick at my stomach. It's kind of like the story of the wheat and tares, isn't it? The tares rise up among the wheat. And you can't look at them and tell the difference between a wheat and a tear. But what do we see in Matthew 7? As the many will cry out, they will say what? Lord, Lord. And he'll say, depart, I didn't know you. You did works in my name, but I never truly knew you. I didn't know you. And because they believe they're good to go, they won't get right with God. They won't get right with God because they think they're already there in their own mind. What do they say? They say that we're rich. We've got our stuff. We don't need anything because we're rich and we're blessed and we have everything. So we don't, we don't need for anything. And Jesus says, you think you got it. But you're wretched. You're miserable. You're poor. You're blind. You're naked. You're like a Pharisee. What do you say to the Pharisees when they tried to corner him? about healing the blind man, he looked at the Pharisees and he said, if you would only see, if you would only see like this blind man, you too could be saved. But you won't. Because you won't bring yourself to that place. So God says to the lukewarm church, you make me sick at my stomach. Now I don't know about you guys. In these letters, we see that God is angry with some churches. We see that God is saddened by some churches. But there is absolutely nothing that I think would break my heart more than to have my Jesus say, you make me sick to my stomach. You make me sick. I just want to vomit you from my mouth. Because you, you, you won't even get cold and admit you need Jesus. You won't get hot and find Jesus. You make me sick to my stomach. So first, the authority of the rebuke. Second, the severity of the rebuke. And finally, the grace in the rebuke. Because this is the best part. In verse 19, what's he say there at the end of that? Therefore, be zealous and what? Say it for me again. Be zealous and be zealous and repent. What Jesus says. You make me sick at my stomach. 
I want to vomit you from my mouth. I don't know about you guys, but somebody makes me sick at my stomach, makes me want to vomit them from my mouth. I don't know that I'm going to turn around and extend to them an invitation of salvation. But the grace and the rebuke is this. Jesus says, repent. He's essentially saying, be saved. You're not hot. You're not cold. Get hot. Be saved. Come. Ask for forgiveness. Turn from your sins and walk in my ways and become the church that I created you to be. You don't have to be what you are. You can be what I created you to be. Church, I fear that too many have become comfortable being lukewarm. Too many people in this culture have become perfectly fine, not being hot, not being cold, just sliding on by. Not cold enough to admit that we're not worshiping the way that we need to worship. Not not burdened enough to say, God, renew in me the joy of my salvation. And so this evening as we close, I ask you to do this, heading into revival. Sit at the feet of the Master and say, I will not be satisfied with anything less than the Holy Ghost fire in my life. I will not rest until I'm resting with the Savior. Do not be a lukewarm Christian. Now, I know at the church of Laodicea, we didn't have lukewarm Christians. We had non-Christians. But what I'm saying to you is use the reference to apply to you where it's at. Do not be lukewarm. Don't be someone who's not on fire for God. Why? Because why would you? Why would that be your desire for your walk with Jesus? For it to be, eh, Because God is not an eh kind of God. God is a woo kind of God. Let's pray. Father God, God, we thank you so much for your word. God, because in your word we see that even when we are at our worst, your grace is sufficient. God, we see that no matter How far we seem to have wandered, we're never beyond the grip of your grace. God, we thank you that even in our seasons where we're not hot nor cold, we're but one moment of revival away from burning the fields of our lives down with your Holy Ghost fire. So God, create in us a clean heart, purge us of our iniquity, and revive us again. It's in your precious name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day.